This week on Writers Inc. I guess from my perspective, you just really have to be invested in the characters. It can't all, I mean, you have to have a fabulous plot, which I think we have, that I think will really entertain readers as they try to solve these riddles. But a lot of what we did on the front end in terms of trying to come up with um, the ideas for the book is figure out why our main characters are invested in this quest. What What's at stake, as Boyd always says. We've got to have something where the reader very clearly knows that if this quest is not solved, something really, really impactful uh, and usually negative is going to happen. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. Kevin Tomlinson. And this is J.D. Barker. Welcome to a very special Writer's Inc. Literally, everybody is traveling. Well, other than Christine. Christine is still in the same like basement dungeon where you dungeon. normally broadcast from. Yeah. She's going full witness protection right now because she's got the sunglasses on and the you know the brick wall yeah. behind her. Yeah, she, she's <laughs> hiding from somebody, so we're not going to talk about that. Kevin, where are you right now? You're man. I'm in Sin City. I'm in Vegas for uh, Twenty Books Vegas, the last uh, the last official Twenty Books Vegas, and then next year it gets renamed to a whole new conference. So, oh, I didn't even know that was happening. Yeah. 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 It's going to be a new thing, right? Like new focus and everything. Yep. It's uh, so Joe Solari, if you're familiar with him, he's taking the whole thing over and reformatting it, giving it a new name. Uh, he's got some big plans. I can't reveal anything he's told me, but um, he's got some big plans for the conference starting next year. So cool. I'm excited about and, where it's going. And Patrick is there somewhere too, right? But just too lazy to log in and do a podcast. That's what I'm thinking. Can't, can't, yeah. Can't be bothered. We can't both be using the hotel Wi-Fi. Uh, <laughs> Not at the same time, of course. <laughs> it's crazy, crazy talk. Um, and, and I'm in Dubai. I'm at the Sharjah Book Festival, um, which is it's actually kind of refreshing. So they've got two million people that come through this book festival every single year. It's been going on for 42 years. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of parents with their kids um, basically just enjoying books. Um, you know, there's authors here talking. There's publishers. There's booksellers. Uh, and like some of these families literally have shopping carts and they are just going from one stall to another and, and just picking up books. Um, and, and I heard this like right before coming back to the hotel to do the podcast. But apparently the, 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 the man who organizes this entire event actually bought a coffee table for every family in the city and, and gave them a list of books. And they were allowed to choose 100 of them. So he is very much into reading and, and getting everybody on board with it. So it's, it, it's fun and it's refreshing to see that, that level. Um, I'm getting the same questions that I normally get in the U.S. Um, you know, is AI going to take everything over? Um, yeah. A lot, a lot of those. Um, the question I'm getting here, though, a lot that I, I, I no longer get in the U.S. is, is our ebooks going to destroy the print market? Um, because in this part of the really? world, ebook ebooks are new. They're, they're, you know, people are still reading print books and, you know, e-readers are just now starting to, to trickle out and, and become popular. Um, so yeah, so that's something they're talking about. It, it took me out of, you know, cause I don't think I've gotten that question since like, what, 2010, 2011, yeah. like is when they're, yeah. so it's been a while. Man, yeah. I wish but someone yeah. would buy me a coffee table full of books. What do I got to do to say Yeah, right. <laughs> the whole Harry Potter collection was on there. Like that, that would be nice. I'm missing a couple of those. Oh geez. Yeah. I read the description. I was just curious and it was, it was really like family oriented books for the whole family. I was like, yep. And then JD's books. So yeah, <laughs> they, they, they sent me off to a, a school today um, and it, most of the schools here are basically every grade. So they had uh, you know preschool and nursery all the way up through 12th grade and, and you know high school level all in one building. Um, and I was talking to uh, ninth and 10th graders and they had fourth monkey there and, and you know, fifth with the, like that whole series. Um, and, you know, like the, the kids, they bought up all the books. They, they read a lot of this, this, you know, that type of book. So I guess they're, you know, they're not shy about you know, certain subject matter or whatever. They're, they're pretty well read. 
Um, and this area is just very diverse. Um, yeah, it's all expats. It's like 90% expats. You know, so people from all around the world all kind of converged in this this one one city. Um, and, and honestly, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's all on the water. It reminds me a lot of Florida from, you know, this looks like a lot of resorts and things like that. But very cool part of the country, very different from what I expected coming out here. So I'm, I'm glad I made the trip. Yeah. But it's super hot, you said. Super hot. Yeah, that's that's the part that's killing me. I think even right now, like it's, it's nighttime here. It's it's 10 minutes after 10 and it's like 92 degrees outside. Yeah, wow. and, and very, that's like very awesome humid. Texas, man. Yeah, <laughs> then it's humid. So it just it's, you know, slaps you in the face the second you go, you go out there. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Kevin, what is in the news? Well, first up, uh, the Wall Street Journal discontinues its bestsellers list, which this this is interesting news to hear. Uh, as of November 2023, the Wall Street Journal has stopped running its weekly bestseller list. This change follows the expiration of their contract with, and I'm going to say it's Circana Bookscan. Uh, the w, uh, WSJ's bestseller list included a, a total of six fiction and nonfiction titles, along with a hardcover business list and uniquely combined adult and children's titles on one list. I'm kind of sad to see this list go, actually. I, I am, too. And, you know, but we saw the USA Today list go away for a little while and then come back. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of hoping that we're going to see that here. They're just going to find another another data source. And, and honestly, I would rather see – like, BookScan is great from the – you know from, but the, the problem with it is it doesn't capture all the sales. Um, so yeah. it's not the most accurate out there as far as tabulating everything, especially from an indie standpoint, because a lot of the sales, you know, a lot of the markets just aren't on BookScan. Um, so hopefully they'll they'll come up or come back with something better in you know a couple months like USA Today did. But yeah, see, sad to see another one of these go. How helpful? Do you think they're useful? Do you, do you really think it matters if you get on these lists? They're useful to the authors, right? Because now all of a yeah. sudden you can slap Wall Street Journal bestseller on your cover or USA or New York Times or whatever. And it, you know, it gives you that little extra bump. Um, yeah. You know, I think from that level, it's useful. Um, yeah. But yeah, aside aside from that, like I, I, it's been a very long time, I think, since I've actually gone to one of those lists to figure out what I'm going to read next. Um, you know, you tend to see a same. lot of the same titles up there. Um, and, you know, you can basically hop on Amazon and see in real time what, what's really selling. And, you know, for better or worse, that that's the more effective model, I think, right now for leading buyers to the, you know, to the, the promised land of a good book. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. But I think it can't hurt to have that on your cover. It might make a reader be like, oh, you made that list. Maybe I'll give it a chance. So that can be probably the only benefit I would see. I'm trying to think if I've ever bought a book because I saw that they were in New York Times. It, it doesn't really impact, but I may be a special use case there, right? Like I'm, I'm buying books for different reasons, but I don't know. It was never something, even when I was a kid, wasn't, it didn't impress me to the point where like, okay, I have to buy this book because the New York times says it's great. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it gives it a little bit more credibility. You know, like if I'm walking yeah, through the yeah. bookstore and I see that on there, you know, for, uh, I don't know whether it really should, but it, it just kind of does. It just sort of validates it a little bit. I mean, I'm able to put best selling author on my books, but when people, uh, if I encounter like trolls on Twitter or something, it's always like, well, I've never heard of you. So you're clearly a liar. You know, so <laughs> maybe, maybe if it was New York Times bestselling author, maybe that would be, I'd win those fights. You know what I'd like to see happen? I'd, I'd like to see Amazon, like when you actually hit the top of one of those bestseller lists, I'd like to see that little, you know, medallion that they give you stick up there for a while. Cause I, I'm pretty right. sure it goes away like right after you, you, does, you drop yeah. back down to, you know, whatever position. I mean, um, I think I think they should just stick that on your author profile and on uh, Author Central. It should just be something that's once you've hit it. I mean, why not continue to have that? You know, you're not currently one, but you were one. So why not, you know, leave that up yeah. there? But that's never going to happen. That's Amazon. Nope. I'll get right on that with Amazon. Uh, <laughs> you do that. <laughs> All right. Next up, uh, Spotify streaming audiobook service launches in the U.S. Uh, Spotify has now launched its audiobook subscription service in the U.S. market after debuting it overseas. The U.S. launch provides the same model of 15 hours of listening per month to premium subscribers. Spotify's audiobook catalog has expanded to over 200,000 titles, including books from all major publishers. And early results from the UK and Australia launches showed lots of listening, in quotes, uh, and ability to easily link podcasts to audiobooks by the same creators. That feature alone is something I'm kind of really 
excited about and interested in. I'm wondering how authors feel about this. So JD, I don't know if you have your book on there, but I was doing some more digging into this and looking at some other articles and Spotify negotiated these deals with each publisher, but not with yeah. the authors. So the authors weren't consulted on, you know, license or payment terms. So I'm wondering, like, how do people feel about this? Is streaming books going to be like streaming music? Is it going to devalue the time it takes into a book? Because it's not like a song that you can listen to a million times. Like once you listen to a book once, that's likely it, right? Well, that was the first thought that popped into my head. I've got a lot of friends that are musicians and, I, you know, we've, we've all seen the royalty checks after streaming, you know, basically came out in, on, on the internet. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid that that's what's going to happen from this. Um, I, I just made a mental note um, to, to check my royalty statement when it comes in. All of my audiobooks are with recorded books, um, you know, so I did, and they're all on Spotify. They're all on the, the different platforms. So I'm going to see something. So I guess on my next royalty statement, you know, depending on how well I can break it out, it's either going to be a dip or a rise. Um, hopefully it's going to be an improvement, but you never know. Yeah, yeah, so it looks like publishers and authors are paid based on either a percentage of a book that the user listens to or how many hours they listen to. Which sounds a lot like KDP to me, and we know those payments yeah. aren't great. So yeah, we'll see, we'll see. But like I said, I like uh, I like what they're worth, and I actually got a chance to sit and chat with some of the Spotify folks, the Findaway folks here at um, at Twenty Books. Uh, and they, they, there's a lot more that's coming and some interesting things are happening on the Spotify front, but the things that I'm really interested in that, that whole thing about connecting your podcast to your audio book and vice versa, I think is something that we can leverage and get really creative with. Um, cause you know, podcasting is, is still big somehow, some way it's still, you know, a huge part of the indie author space. So uh, SAG-AFTRA approves deal to end historic strike. Finally, this was going on forever. SAG-AFTRA's tentative deal ends a 118-day Hollywood strike offering actors unprecedented AI protections and a 7% pay rise, exceeding increases for writers and directors. Actors to receive a historic 7% pay increase with further details pending a national board vote. The deal, however, does, does not include a share of streaming revenue for actors. Key negotiation challenges included uh, at addressing artificial intelligence and streaming rights with the final offer lacking a union prior prioritized revenue share from steaming, uh, streaming platforms, also steaming platforms. Uh, the prolonged strike halted major TV and film productions, threatening upcoming TV and film seasons. The agreement opening the way for actors to return to work awaits ratification by union members. So it could still fall apart, but it's looking better. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad to see like right before I got on the plane, I think the last story I saw, saw about this was, you know, like last offers basically on the table and SAG's not biting and it, yeah. it didn't look good. So I'm, I'm glad they, they were able to come to a settlement. Um, yeah. I know the AI stuff was a, a huge deal for them, just like it is for everybody else. It's nice to see them make some progress there. Um, but I know streaming rights you know, and, and payments on that was also a, a big part of this. Um, so I'm wondering if they had to give that up in order to get what they wanted on the, the AI side. I mean, ten, you know, usually in these kind of things, nobody walks away from the table happy. Everybody, you know, it's all give and take and kind of land somewhere in the middle. Um, so I imagine that that's probably what happened. And, and you, know, they're, you know, just like, you know, with the, the music and, and possibly now with audiobooks, you know, actors are, are feeling the pinch because, you know, if you go back in the day, you know, actors on a TV show, you know, saw those residual checks for years and years and years, and they were substantial checks. Um, and they counted on that as part of their income. And in today's world, that just doesn't happen. Somebody like Netflix steps in, they license the show from whoever actually owns that property. Um, you know, you can watch it a million times. It doesn't matter how many people watch it, how long it's really up there. Like, it's just they're, they're not getting the, the proper piece of that, at least not compared to what they used to get in the past. So who knows? I mean, if they block down AI, maybe on the, the next go around, they'll, they'll try and finalize this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's likely what happened. I'm just glad that they are looking to settle and we can get back to making some movies. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's interesting that the piece that didn't get solved was the streaming stuff, uh, because uh, frankly, that's that's a much bigger deal for them than the AI stuff was going to be. They were, they were always going to have a certain level of protection on the AI front. And 
that I think was kind of a false flag kind of thing. Um, I think actually at the start of these thing of the uh, strikes, the big studios like Disney, et cetera, I think they did certain things with AI in order to make that the main topic that everyone focused on so that they forget about streaming. Maybe. So it's interesting that waving, they huh? did. Yeah, watch, watch yeah. my right hand. My, my left hand does this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's what it feels like to me. And the fact that they didn't resolve the streaming piece of it by the end of the strike to, it tells me that that was definitely yeah. part of the plans. So that's a lot of money that, that was on that's the table a lot there, of the money. streaming. So yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what started a lot of this was the, you know, this whole streaming piece of that. The, that was what the writers were uh, upset about is that, you know, we got these programs. We used to be able to count on reruns and things like that on broadcast TV. And that would be residuals for them for a long time to come. But now, you know, something runs on streaming. Everybody watches it in one night. You know, there's a, there's a whole lot of question marks about how do people get paid properly for that stuff. So. I wonder if the infrastructure is in place to, to actually track that because, you know, like back in the day with, without streaming, you know, they, they based the residual checks on, you know, this network paid for this show. It's gonna, like they knew exactly how many times it was going to run, when it was going to run. Um, yeah. So they were able to divvy up the pot based on that. But in today's world, I mean, they can literally tell down to the second how much of every episode is watched by who and by when. Um, yeah. But like each they can even tell when you dropped out. Like they yeah, could, but you know, every, they could every, every plat every platform tracks that individually. So Netflix yeah. tracks it, Disney tracks it. They all track it for their own benefit. But I'm wondering if the infrastructure is just not there to be able to consolidate all that data and somehow get it to a point where they could somehow pay everybody based on it. You know, and, and maybe yeah. you know there could be a behind the scenes kind of thing going on where they're trying to finalize an infrastructure so that on the next you know, negotiation they've got you know the infrastructure is there and they can actually really rule on it. Uh, because if they would have ruled on it today without the infrastructure, then what happens? I mean, do you give them a year to, to build out the infrastructure? I don't know. It's yeah. complicated stuff. That does make Hopefully sense. That, that that means they're probably going to come. They probably put a pin in it. And so they're ending the strike with the provision that, you know, in yeah. nine months behind, or 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. yeah behind closed doors, you've got X amount of time to, to yeah. come up with a solution for this. And we're going to come back that to makes the table sense. or something. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And on that note, J.D., who's up this week? This week, we've got New York Times bestsellers Beth and Boyd Morrison. They're here to tell us about their latest novel, The Last True Templar, which is out right now. Here they are, Beth and Boyd. So you have a new book, The Last True Templar, about a band of heroes who go on a quest for the fabled Knights of the Templar treasure and try to save a noble woman from ruin or death. Do you want to talk a little bit about what to expect from the book? Well, our our series is called The Tales of the Lawless Land. And the first book, The Lawless Land, introduced readers to our knight, Sir Gerard Fox, who has been excommunicated. He's lost his land and lost his title and his reputation. And he meets up with a noblewoman who is uh, trying to flee her brutal fiance. And they find that their, uh, their goals are aligned. And so they team up and go on this quest across England, France, and Italy. And in the second book, they are still together and trying to figure out how they are going to stay together as part of this. And they come across a woman named Luciana who um, in, the, in central Italy who is beset by marauders. And they rescue her and find out that she needs to find the lost treasure of the Knights Templar to um, save herself. And um, they they come to find that they have to, to they must help her to not only save her but save themselves as well. Right. So, I mean, this is a fun quest story, very like action Indiana Jones style. Anyone who's read uh, Save the Cat knows that one of the story types they, that's covered is the quest. What, in your opinion, is necessary to make a good quest story? I guess from my perspective, you just really have to be invested in the characters. It can't all, I mean, you have to have a fabulous plot, which I think we have, that I think will really entertain readers as they try to solve these riddles. 
But a lot of what we did on the front end in terms of trying to come up with um, the ideas for the book is figure out why our main characters are invested in this quest. What What's at stake, as Boyd always says? We've got to have something where the reader very clearly knows that if this quest is not solved, something really, really impactful uh, and usually negative is going to happen. Yeah, and here it absolutely does. So yeah, big stakes. And I want to talk a little bit about the the story because it's a medieval story. And there are things that probably modern readers don't understand very well, like what it means to be excommunicated. How do you make that interesting to modern readers, understandable? Well, I I am I would never have taken on this series without Beth. Um, <laughs> she's my uh, uh, younger sister, and she's an expert medievalist um, and head curator of manuscripts at the Getty Museum. So she is very well versed in the Middle Ages. I am not, so I had to learn all of this stuff. I'm the storyteller. Um, I've written twelve contemporary thrillers, but um, this one was a very big challenge because I had to learn all of that and excommunication was one of them. I I knew that what it meant that you were basically exiled from the Catholic Church, but I didn't realize how extreme a punishment that was in the Middle Ages, right, Beth? Yeah, I mean, excommunication really was almost a fate worse than death because if you died while you were excommunicated, then your soul went to hell. So it, there was there was a lot um, that went along with excommunication. You were actually shunned. You couldn't talk to um, people who were in church. You couldn't take part in any of the sacraments. So you couldn't get married. You couldn't have last rites. Um, and you weren't allowed to uh, go into a church. Um, and celebrate mass. And so those were all really, really important things to people in the Middle Ages. But I think the reason that the co-authoring thing works really well is that I have that expert expertise. And Boyd, since he's learning it, is then able to figure out the best way to explain it to our readers, because I get wrapped up in all of my academic medieval stuff, and then he kind of translates it for the general public. And what we spend a lot of time doing is, again, trying to figure out, instead of just having these information dumps about what it means to be excommunicated, how to weave that into the plot, um, as our editor is always saying, show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. And you have a part in there with a gentleman who is hurt and excommunicated and it was just shocking you know nobody would help him and <laughs> I was like oh you know I always knew what excommunicated meant but I didn't realize how severe of a punishment it was so there were lots of things that yeah was like a great job for a lay reader just being like oh I never really knew what this meant and it is really like a, a knight errant uh story can you explain a bit about that and any tips you have on how to write a good knight errant well, we, we got the idea to to form our series around a knight errant because Beth has actually written about um, stories from the Middle Ages. That I mean, the the knight errant is a common story element. You see that in things like the Clint Eastwood Man with No Name. Um, Jack Reacher is really a knight errant. He's and Lee Child has even said he based Jack Reacher on the legend of the knight errant, uh, the Mandalorian is a knight errant. And so it's it's a, a story that we'll always be interested in. And we decided to actually go back to the origin of it, of an actual knight in the Middle Ages who is knight errant traveling around. And um, we not only because Beth has written about that, it's a, it's a story that originated really in the Middle Ages, but we also, it gives us an excuse to go do our research all over Europe um, for a different location in every book. And so we, we get a nice uh, chance to visit places we haven't seen before. Nice. So what places did you visit for, for the, the series, the first book in this book? So um, for the first, ser uh, the first book in the series, we started in England and follow our characters through France and they end up in Italy, which is why the second book begins in Italy and goes through different towns in Italy. And then we won't ruin where that book ends up for um, people uh, who are planning to read the book. Um, but then we're also um, already working on the third book in the series, 
which will actually take place in medieval Croatia. So, you know, we, 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 on our trips, when we go to do the research, we actually follow the same itinerary that our characters will eventually take. Um, and it's really cool to go, to go in their footsteps, even if, you know, we're in a car or a train um, and it's going to take them weeks to get um, where it takes us just a day or two to get to. But it really helps inform the story. And we're always finding things in our actual travels to integrate into the plot. So we, we go with sort of a narrative arc but then we leave a lot of room to kind of put in all the kind of fabulous places and details we find. That's fun. So you said you're doing this by train or car. Do you do any kind of experiential medieval stuff, horseback riding, sword fighting? What are you learning how to do? We actually, uh, we found a place in Southern California where Beth lives that uh, the, it's a ranch uh, about 45 minutes outside of LA where they train stunt people and actors how to do jousting and archery. And so we took a day and went out there and we learned how to throw a spear from a horse, how to do mounted archery on horseback. And we learned jousting because we have a jousting tournament in the first book. And we thought, oh, well, we need to know what that is like. And so we got to carry the lance and put on the helmet with the teeny slit in it and the shield and ride on horseback and find out how difficult it actually is. The, the knights must have been super skilled to be able to hold a lance and shield and wear the, all the armor and control a horse it's uh, it you know compares to any athlete today in terms of difficulty. Yeah, we were just like drenched in sweat. I mean, it is so hard physically. Um, I knew that there was a lot of skill, like aiming the lance and all that kind of stuff, but the sheer sheer physical brute strength you had to have. They must have been you know like the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of the Middle Ages or something. Yeah. Did you break a lance? Did you get? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I uh, what did I broke? Yeah, I did break a lance. I dropped it the wrong way, and it and it shattered. <laughs> yeah, he was not happy. <laughs> oh, that's that's the funny. most disappointing thing was that for safety reasons they wouldn't let Boyd and I joust against each other. We only could joust against the teacher, and I think we were a little disappointed. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Did you learn any sword techniques or anything like that? Or do you study uh, uh, medieval fighting? We we um, actually have had a couple of uh, experts in medieval weaponry read the book and give us feedback about, um, you know, the, the sword fighting techniques and the type of weapons they would use. And um, we've, of course, watched a lot of videos about sword fighting. And actually, I'm also an actor. And I, I did a play one time where I had to fight uh, on stage with a broadsword. So I've actually done choreographed sword fighting uh, in front of an audience. Oh, that's fun. What do you think writers get wrong when writing sword and board fight scenes and how could they do it better? Well, I mean, I think I think Boyd and I are exceptionally lucky that because of my field, I actually there. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but there is an international contemporary jousting circuit, and I know one of the the best jousters, contemporary jousters in the world, who is also a, a trained medieval historian. He was the head of arms and armor um, at a collection in Britain, and um, so I've learned so much from him. Actually, in our collection at the Getty, we have one of the most important sword fighting manuals um, that has survived from the Middle Ages. So I, I have a little bit of extra access. And I think that we're very lucky, as Boyd said, that we've had people who are experts in this material um, to help us make sure that we're kind of getting it right. Because I don't think a lot of people have access to that. And that's how, I mean, because we get stuff wrong, but we have people to tell us mm -hmm. what, how to do it right. And we, um, one of the interesting things that we found out for this, for the first book is we have a duel um, that's a trial by combat ordered by the King of France. And it's a very solemn affair because it is determining who is at fault in, in a murder. And one thing we learned from a man, an actual manual from the 14th century is that 
during a tournament, which we also featured, um, it's it's a sporting event. People cheer and clap for their favorite night um, in the in the joust, and and it's a very raucous kind of affair. But with a trial by combat, it's a duel to the death, and it's a very serious event that you are witnessing God's judgment. And so before the the duel takes place, a herald comes out and tells all the rules, not only for the knights who are going to be dueling, but also for the audience. And one of the rules is that they must be completely silent by order of the king on pain of death because they are there to be witnesses. They're not there to be cheering on one person or another. So a duel to, to the death, a trial by combat is done in complete silence, except for the noises that the, the two knights are making. And so the, I think that just is a really interesting juxtaposition between the tournament and the judicial combat. Yeah. Wow. And you don't see that a lot in movies. A lot of movies, they show a duel to the death and people are cheering and that's not actually how it would have happened. No. And uh, yeah, you can use that for great chilling effects, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you said you do use uh, sword experts. Do you use any kind of other expert consultants um, to help you get stuff right? Yeah, I have. I mean, th the best thing about trying to write this series, when Boyd first told me about it and asked me to co-write this series, because he's, you know, a very well-established action-adventure thriller author, um, and then he came up with this new idea of us co-writing a book set in the Middle Ages. And of course, I was all for it from the beginning, sort of naively thinking, well, I've spent the past 30 years studying, you know, the Middle Ages, that, you know, it, it'll come easily to me. And then Boyd started asking me questions like, oh, how much would it cost to cross a toll bridge in Cambridge in 1351? And what's, what kind of horse would they have been riding? And what kind of light would they have had on a, a tavern? And I realized... I don't know any of this stuff, <laughs> but I'm a trained historian. And so I know all of the sources and I know all of the people. So when we get stuck on something, my first thing is to, you know, I know how to do research and I'll go and try to find the right book to tell me what would happen. If I can't find it there, I have a huge network of medievalists across the world and I can ask them questions. And then if I can't find it in books and I can't find it as a specialist, I'm like, we're making it up because clearly no one in the world knows the answer. Perfect. I love that. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to make it up, right? So you are the senior curator of manuscripts, right? For the Getty Museum? Indeed. Did you find anything in your collection that you pulled from that may have been little known or like a unique piece of information that was really fun to write about? Yeah, so we get a lot of our inspiration actually from things that I found in my studies over time because I'm I, I'm actually a specialist in 14th century France, which is of course one of the reasons that we chose that era. Um, for our book. And of course, it was also the era of the Black Death and the Hundred Years War. So there's plenty of dramatic events happening in Europe at that time period that we could utilize. Um, but, you know, even the inspiration for our main character in many ways came from my research over time. So Boyd was talking about the sort of genre of the knight errant. And I had just completed two books um, uh, two separate um, uh, manuscripts in our collection, one about a knight named Jacques de Lalande, and then another about a knight named Julien de Trazegny. And many of the things that they did that were recorded in these medieval books about them are things that we incorporated into the story. But I think my favorite little detail uh, that we did is one of my areas of um, specialty is the medieval bestiary, which is a kind of medieval encyclopedia of animals. And one of the animals that has a long entry in the bestiary is the fox. And the fox is very much known for being a wily trickster. And he's always sort of like putting his intellect into getting away with things and, and all of that. And so that was the inspiration for naming our knight Gerard Fox. And then Boyd, you can say how we actually ended up working that into the plot a little bit. Yeah, and there, there is a medieval tale about Reynard the Fox, um, which uh, it was well known to people of that era because it was a great story of um, the, 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 the downtrodden fox who was always getting the best of the, 
the Lion King and the Wolf um, Overlord. And we actually alluded to that in the story. Um, and, and I came to learn that Renard the, was the name of the fox in those stories. And it was so well known that it is now the French word for fox is mm -hmm. Renard because he, he became so well known. And so it, you, you can see when we talk, we do talk about that story in the book and you can see how the characters in the, the Renard stories actually are echoed in, in the actual story that we're telling. And so, yeah. And, and with Fox, he often gets out of his situations, not by fighting, but by being clever enough to trick whoever um, they are going up against. And so we wanted to have him both be intellectual and a fighter um, to get out of these situations. That's, that's great. Um, yeah. You must find amazing stuff. Anything that you found that you might use for future inspiration for a book that's been kind of cool or what's, what's your favorite thing that you found? Well, the, the best area is some, at some point we want to include that because, you know, for, for Europeans, when they would hear about animals that were so exotic, I mean, think about describing an elephant to somebody who had never seen one. You, you wouldn't believe it that, that this gigantic animal would use its nose to move. The, I mean, it would sound made up. And so they made up a lot of animals. Um, but we'd also like, the, our, our books are grounded in reality. We don't have anything supernatural, but um, I, we, we may feature a dragon in a future story just because that was so such a important legend in that time period. And so we've we've actually thought of a way to incorporate a dragon into our story. Yeah, I've always been curious about that because, you know, you see depictions of dragons um, from, you know, the Middle Ages. And I'm like, what was it back then? What are they depicting? So I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, so dragons were really associated with evil in the Middle Ages. And the bestiary, this kind of medieval encyclopedia of animals that I talked about, included animals that they would have known in Europe, like dogs and cows and horses and stuff like that. But then it also included um, animals that would have seemed exotic because they were from Africa, things like lions and elephants. But then there were also all the the made-up animals um, that... Uh, like unicorns and dragons and things like that. And people in the Middle Ages, although they did travel, just like our characters travel, it was not as widespread to travel. And they certainly weren't traveling to sort of South Africa on a you know normal basis or China or India. And so a lot of these places became sort of exoticized in the medieval imagination. And a lot of the animals... Um, in the bestiary are talked about coming like the unicorn is found in Ethiopia or India. And Ethiopia and India just became these words that simply meant far away. They didn't really have anything to do with what actual medieval Ethiopia or India was like. And so they were always putting these animals like dragons and dog-headed men and all these kinds of things. And the interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people know is that um, when Marco Polo, whom everybody knows is one of the first European travelers who did travel to India and China, uh, when he came back, his text talks about how he saw a unicorn and how he saw dog-headed men, because it was so firmly embedded in the medieval imagination that if he had said he went to those places and didn't claim to see them, they would have thought he hadn't actually gone. He was making it up. <laughs> So it's really interesting how this sort of idea of imagination and reality really did intermingle in the Middle Ages. And the dragon in particular was sort of seen as the the greatest um, sort of evil and, and horrible creature. But Boyd and I have talked about this. And if you're sitting in medieval Europe and you have no actual information, real information about these places, there's no Wikipedia, there's no planes, and somebody described an elephant to you and somebody described a dragon... Well, you have lizards everywhere, and yeah, maybe one of them could breathe fire, but something with a nine-foot-long nose that weighs three tons and doesn't have any, you know, knees, like that sounds really much more bizarre. So you have to kind of think about it from the perspective of being in the Middle Ages. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, 
I've heard other, you know, historical authors say that they'll do 10 hours of research for every 10 minutes that they write. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was just wondering if you have any kind of like time saving tips to help historical authors do their research faster. Uh, well, get a sister who is an <laughs> expert in that time period. That That's one one way of doing it. Uh, but I, I think we um, we we decide on the plot first and then we figure out what we need to know to make the plot happen i mean certainly we we research we we put together the plot before we go travel so we know the basics of what we want to happen and like beth said we we try to follow the path of our characters um but there's you also have to leave a lot of room for serendipity and for new ideas to come up because there are things we found that, and of course, many people can't travel to do their research, but luckily there's so many resources online now. You can um, you can read people's travel logs from when they travel. You can see on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, all kinds of pictures and video of almost any place you would think of going. Um, and reading people's diaries of how they traveled there. Um, and then I think there's, we use a lot of historical texts too, right, Beth? Yeah, so I have access to a lot of edited medieval texts through, you know, my own personal library, but also at the Getty, and then the wonderful library at UCLA isn't too far away. So I find myself going to UCLA quite a bit to find out individual pieces of information. But like Boyd said, one of the things that we have learned on our trips doing these, like the, now that we've done three trips, we cannot take enough pictures. There is never enough pictures because inevitably we've been like, wait, wasn't there that thing that we could use, but was it on the right or was it on the left? And so, for instance, um, one of the pieces of research we did was in medieval um, Siena. One of the scenes happens there. And so we went to real life Siena, which was fabulous. And we were climbing the Torre del Mangia, which is the was the tallest tower in Italy at the time period. And we knew we wanted to set a scene there and we were doing all this kind of stuff. And I, when we got back, we, we needed some kind of piece of information. I don't even remember what it was now. And I actually found a YouTube video of a guy who had his GoPro on. So he had every single minute of going up that tower. I was like, wait, pause it. That's it right there. That's what we need. <laughs> so it is amazing. It's a kind of combination of book research, being there, and then following up by other things that people have put online. But I agree with you in terms of the amount of research that has to go into every 10 pages <laughs> yeah. of the book. But on the other hand, I, I wrote a book that took place in the Philippines. And I, I um, wrote about this island uh, and in, in great detail. And I did all my research online. And I had somebody, um, when they were reviewing the book, said, wow, that this author must have spent so much time on this island researching. And I... I've never been to the Philippines. So it can be done also just from the comfort of your home on your laptop. So I would say to writers out there, don't, if you can't go visit someplace, that doesn't mean you can't write about it. I think Gene Koontz never leaves Southern California and he writes about Japan and all these other places and you would never know. And so it's just about writing it convincingly enough that you you give people the sense of what it would be like to be there and and you don't need to go but it but we certainly like being able to go and getting those little tidbits that maybe we wouldn't have found otherwise absolutely and of course Boyd and I are writing about the 14th century he and I have never been to the 14th century (laughs) so you know and and we write and it seems pretty convincing so (laughs) yes that it sure does so as we're just kind of running out of time here I just want to ask you a little bit about collaborative writing, because we have lots of authors who are doing it or curious about it. You're a little bit unique and that your siblings who write together. How has your co-writing process changed going into the second book? What does it look like for you to write together? Well, we, um, Beth, Beth has always edited all of my books. Um, she, she was one of my first readers on every book. She's a great editor. She's a big thriller fan. And um, so, so we have worked together a lot before. And the good thing is she is not afraid to tell me that something needs to be fixed. So we, we are very 
good about taking honest feedback from each other. And we plot the books together. Um, a lot of times when we're walking our dogs in the morning or evening, and we just chat on the phone every day. And when we're coming up with a chapter, we, we decide what it's going to be about. And then I go back and write it. Although Beth is a writer in her own right. She's written six or seven academic books. Um, but I'm the thriller writer. So I go and write it. And then I send the, each chapter to her as it's done. And she reads it and edits it. And she she adds in her own stuff, too. Um, and, uh, and, and fixes all of my medieval anachronisms because again, I don't know. any. So I'll, a lot of times I'll put in, they're wearing clothes and then I'll say, <laughs> Beth, what kind, just put in whatever they're wearing. I don't know. And, um, and then we just keep going like that until the book's done. Excellent. What advice would you give to, uh, authors who want to try co-writing for the first time? Well, you know, I always say much like Boyd's answer earlier is like, it's really helpful to have a New York Times bestselling author for a brother, but that's <laughs> that's not particularly great advice. Um, I think that what I would say is the reason that it works so well between Boyd and I is because um, we have a long history together, which helps when um, things get tense or things, you know, are behind schedule or whatever, we can rely on that long relationship. But I think the most important thing for us is two things. One, we really respect each other. Like Boyd said, we feel like we can tell each other, like, this is not working. We've got to redo it. And we don't we don't fear sort of any kind of repercussions. Like, we want the same things. So you've got to have that really deep level of trust and respect. But then the other thing that I think really helps us, the second element, is really fun. We don't, you know, I have a full-time job that's fabulous. I don't need to do this. Boyd could be off writing thrillers on his own, but we enjoy doing this together. And I think that's what make the, what comes out in the book itself. I think the book is fun because we have such fun. Okay. Has anyone other than me wondered what the heck a dragon is and why it's in so many historical texts? <laughs> or is that just a me thing? <laughs> I, I'm... I, my general opinion is they probably existed at some point, it, not not as a dragon. I mean, a, maybe a dinosaur somehow survived or something, and somebody saw it yeah. and wrote about it, and then it ended up in the, the lore way back when. Um, yeah. You know, everything like that seems to have some kind of basis in, in reality. I don't think there's anything flying around breathing fire. Um, but, you know, if it's going to happen anywhere, it's going to be in Vegas, and Kevin will probably see it before he leaves. It'll be here. I probably already have seen it, and I'm just, just too drunk to remember. But, yeah, Giant lizards. There's too many uh, of these kind of things occurring through, like, every mythology in our on the, in the planet, on the planet. I mean, every even the Mesoamerican mythologies that had, supposedly, hope, uh, we think, nothing at all to do with European or Asian cultures. Like, they had creatures like this too so it does make it does kind of make me think there there is something there was something and why it doesn't exist or why we're not necessarily finding evidence of it i can't answer but i, I think it learned to it. swim and it's living in Loch Ness, right that's probably could true. be yeah it's it, yeah, right. it back could too, be I something think. like that yeah <laughs> or we could be there there is that whole theory that we are wildly misinterpreting like certain dinosaur skeletons uh like there's a yeah. whole theory right now that like the T-Rex is not like it's it's a cobbled together like it's not built the way we thought it was being it was built like the whole so you short think it doesn't have the little thing. arms <laughs> yeah it might it might it, huh. I don't I don't know but we do know that there are like in the Smithsonian there was a I don't remember which dinosaur this was but they there was a dinosaur that for like a century uh, people thought well this is Dinosaur X, you know, that of course it looks just like that. And it turned out there were like three different dinosaur skeletons uh kind yeah. of meshed together in this thing. So Yeah, I remember that. What do we know? <laughs> what do we we know nothing. But you know what I thought was really interesting moving on from dragons is uh the way that Beth and Boyd talked about the knight errant. I thought that was interesting. So for listeners who may not know what that is, a knight errant is someone who kind of goes wandering around in search of chivalrous adventures and i thought you know boyd bringing up jack reacher as a knight errant really yeah. got me thinking about it and other stories right you got like superman indiana jones i'm sure there are lots of others have you ever written yeah. a knight errant or would you i haven't but now that you bring it up i might have to it seems like everybody else is doing it yeah i i have a female knight errant uh, in my quick runner series like that's basically 
She's roaming the world, uh, putting right uh, injustices that are being overlooked, you know, helping out the disenfranchised who uh, couldn't get helped by the FBI or the police. And she herself is a a wanted, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, it's not a felon. I don't know what word my brain won't let me come up with. Too much Vegas. But she's uh, she's on the run herself. So it's a little bit like a female Jack Reacher kind of thing. Even Denzel Washington's doing it. I- I, I just saw the new uh, Equalizer movie with Denzel Washington, and it's it's that same same deal. Yeah, so I think a lot of times, like Knight Errands, are not all flat character arcs, but they tend to be a flat arc and not a growth arc. So that's something I've been thinking about. Like, if you want to do, do something, true. yeah, it's almost like uh, it, it's almost like ship in a bottle episodes for like shows like Star Trek or whatever, like that. If you have a series that like Jack Reacher is going to be Jack Reacher in every book, he's not going to have a moment of like, maybe I should stop killing everyone I encounter. He's not going to grow in that way. Every book is going to reset with Jack Reacher back on the road, cash in his pocket and, you know, brand new shirt he picked up at Goodwill. You know, it's always going to be like that. Yeah, but the arc is still there, but it tends to be a supporting character instead that, that goes through it instead of the main character. Yeah. And they change the world around them for the better, right? So why do they have to change, I guess? Absolutely. <laughs> and walk off into the sunset with some cool you know, music playing behind them. Yeah. That is actually an interesting take. Like the growth is like they're just the vehicle of growth rather than, you know, the the growth itself. Yeah. All right. Assuming your sibling was a competent writer, would you write with your sibling? (laughs) Oh, oh, God, no. Um, (laughs) No. You know, my, my wife and I have talked about it, too, because my, my wife is a fantastic writer. But like the two of us actually collaborating on something that just seems like that would just be trouble waiting to happen. Um, you know, it's uh, fine to weigh in on each yeah. other's stuff. But, yeah, that's uh, it's, that's that's tough. Um, I think if you found the, the you know, they clearly found a working relationship and it's not that dissimilar to other co-author you know, projects that, that I've done. You know, you, you don't want two cooks in the kitchen working on the same eggs. If one person's making bacon, another one's making eggs. It's OK. Um, but if you're both, you know, doing trying to cook the same thing, then it's a problem. So, like in their case, you you've got the historian, you've got the the you know the author, and they're kind of combining talents. You know that that works, I think. But you know, just working in general with a, a spouse or family member can be tricky business. Yeah, I, I my my brother, we would kill each other attempting something. <laughs> like that. And so would we. So would my wife and I. Like, and she's actually she actually is a pretty good writer too. She doesn't she hasn't produced anything. Uh, she's got a little bit of stage fright about the whole thing. We tried for a time. She has a great idea, and I love it. And it it makes my brain itch. Like I want to dive in and write that book. But it, then it would be my book. Uh, but she, we have these little like sessions, brainstorm sessions while we're driving. And uh, I ultimately just that experience alone has put me off of actually co-authoring with her because. You know, it doesn't matter what we're discussing. We have to stay on this for the next 12 hours. We're going to talk about this book that I don't get to write. And uh, every idea I come up with is not in line with what she had in mind. So we we end up kind of bickering over it. So I know how that whole thing would go. We, I would end up stabbed or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, I get that. My husband uh, is a good writer, too. Writes good atmospheric noir. Not really that interested in publishing and I was at, at, for a while like we should write something together, but then I'm like, no, we would murder each other. So, <laughs> so this book is uh, the second book in in Boyd and Beth series. I'm curious, how do you get readers up to speed with what happened in the first book without boring them or bogging it down? That's that's tricky, and it's one of the you know there, there's a lot of books where I'll read them first as a fan, and then I go back through with a highlighter and just kind of you know, think, you know highlight that like stuff like that. Um, sometimes characters and introductions and things, but you know if an author is able to fill you in on whatever happened in you know previous book or the previous ten books. Um, and do it well. That that's fantastic. And and the Jack Reacher books, I think, are a good example of that. You know, Lee, you know, just sprinkles in just enough. You know, he's he's got the perfect character, I think, for it to to be able to pull that off. Um, I had to do it with my four MK series um, with Fifth to Die. I I did it. I opened the book with a dream sequence um, that kind of dumped the reader right into you know events from the the first book. And I know you're not supposed to you know start a book with a dream sequence, but you know it, it worked because it allowed me to to tackle all those things. Um, and knock them out in, you know, less than a chapter. 
Um, I, I think if you're going to do it, you know, if you have to do it, just try to keep it short, you know, it, it get, knock it out as quickly as possible. Um, you, you don't want to be repetitive, you know, to whoever just read the first book. You don't want them to have to reread the first book just to figure out what's going on. Yeah. I go out of my way to really try to make, uh, I mean, I've got two ongoing series right now. The, the whole goal for me is always to make them as standalone as possible book to book without having to drop a bunch of backstory for the characters. Because I, that gets boring. Um, and also it's kind of a spoiler. I try, that's, that's the biggest thing I try to avoid. I want people to, to want to go back and read those books and not feel like they already know what the outcome is. They're, it's bad enough that they know that my main character lived uh, from book to book, you know, that spoils it a little, but you know, I do mention, I'll, it's sort of the same way. I try to do the like casual conversation thing. Where, you know, if there was an event in in a previous book that impacts this story, you know, somebody gets to hear it in, in passing, uh, which is, you know, exposition is really difficult <laughs> to do well. But if you can have like a couple of characters who, who are playing the role of the reader in that, um, you don't want to give them like a prologue style introduction to the whole thing. But if there's a mention of like, yeah, it was that guy who had that who stole that. Uh, core for an atomic bomb. You remember that thing? And then there's a brief exchange and then, you know, you can leave the rest of their imagination. Don't show the shark. Yeah, that makes sense. Or the dragon. Or the dragon. No dragons. (laughs) (laughs) I was kind of envious of uh, the traveling that they got to do for their um, book, especially the jousting. It would be cool to joust. Yeah. I would like to knock somebody off a horse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't have you don't have I local did. medieval times. Oh no, we the, there's the like a ren fair, but man, I don't think they just let audience yeah. get up there and joust. I don't think that's a thing that happens. They do that at ours. Yeah, there's one in uh, kind of close to Houston that I, we always went to because it was around my birthday, and we did one one year. We had to pay, and it was like a pre-park hours kind of thing, but you could go in and be trained to be a knight, and so we did jousting and we did sword fighting and you know we got to bash each other on these shields and stuff and you know it's all very safe unfortunately like it took a lot of the fun out of it but it was a fun experience <laughs> when when i was a kid my next door neighbor had two horses and we decided to try jousting with with their their horses <laughs> and, and and two pool cues <laughs> and there was there was there was four of us doing it it lasted for about 12 minutes and you know, one of my friends ended up with two broken ribs in the, the ER. So we were we were not allowed to practice jousting anymore. We we forgot all about the, the suit of armor. The armor you, part. you need yeah. that. Yeah, you need that. <sighs> but you know, when you're when you're twelve, you know, you just go with what you got. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Have you like uh done anything immersive or what's the coolest traveling thing you've done that you've used here for your writing? Are you gonna use uh Dubai as your next setting, JD or I don't. I, I've taken notes with with certain things. I mean, I, I've jumped out of a lot of airplanes, but I've never actually used that in a book. Um, you know, sooner or later, I, I would like to. Um, I've had a lot of cool experiences, but I haven't really pulled from like I just haven't written that type of book. I guess that that incorporates it. Uh, it's, it's all up in my head somewhere. So as long as I don't get Alzheimer's or something, sooner or later, it's going to find its way to paper. Yeah, I've done it. I don't know that I've. I haven't done things like that where I went on some like little adventure and then that translated line to line into the book or anything. But there's a lot of, there were a lot of times where I experienced something while we were traveling and we've traveled quite a bit, you know, so I'll locations uh, show up a lot, but not necessarily like actions or activities, you know, or snatches of conversation that show up a lot. <laughs> I mean, t- tomorrow we're going out in the desert on, on camels and stuff. So like, it's going to be a really cool, fun experience, but unless I decide to write like an Indiana Jones type story where that makes sense, um, you know, it's, I, I, I write about serial killers in places like Chicago. There's not a whole lot of camels involved in that. Well, there, there could You're be. You're doing it all wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess there could be. <laughs> yeah. 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 You got to fight, you got to fight the dragon somehow. Maybe I'll bring in a camel. Maybe. Yeah. I've never Dra- thought about that. Fighting dragons from Camelback. Oh, that'd be perfect. Uh, with pool cues. Yeah. Yeah. Pool, with pool cues. With pool yeah. cues. My skydiving experience was wild, my first one. So I'll have to tell you about that sometime. I got up on the two seater somehow, like everyone else went out later. So I had to like stand on the wheel and hold on to the strut. And that was wild. <laughs> hey, you're supposed to leave the airplane wow. behind when you skydive. Yeah. Everyone else got to like open the door and go out the door. And I had to like stand on the wheel and like, man, that wind is coming at you. 
I was like, I couldn't breathe. I had my mouth yeah. open, I think, because I was afraid and couldn't breathe. So <laughs> I got the close. I, I love it. And nothing will. <laughs> you forget about all your problems for a good minute and a half when you're falling towards the earth. Like nothing else is. Yeah, because you got all new problems. Yeah. For <laughs> for a good minute and a half. Yeah. There is nothing like a thirty second free fall. You're like up there, and then you fall about five thousand feet in thirty seconds, and like there's the ground, and you're pulling a shoot shoot. Like your brain can't even process it. So that's gonna be something yeah. I'll have to put in a book. <laughs> they didn't make you guys do the tandem jumping thing. Like, I, My first I, one, I yeah. The first one. Yeah. No, yeah. I didn't go. Ta- it wasn't tandem. So I had two guys and each were holding an arm and a leg while we free fell. And then when I pulled my chute, they let me go and I piloted down myself. So that was my first skydiving. That, that, that sounds badass. perfectly safe for the first it time. It was badass. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> my landing was okay. It wasn't like graceful when I did land. So. <laughs> oh all right and now that i've survived that jd who's up next week next week we've got james elroy coming on he's the new york times bestseller of some of my personal favorites like la confidential and black dahlia his latest book is called the enchanters and it's based in 1962 and the events surrounding the death of marilyn monroe I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one james elroy yeah i can't wait for that if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.